good news, though, is that I've got a sermon with one point. I'm not kidding. We're getting back into our study in Acts this week, and we're in Acts chapter 16. Does anybody would say, yeah, I'm just kind of familiar with what's in Acts 16, you know, and at midnight, Paul and Silas were praying and singing praises. Like, like I've probably preached that a couple of times um, over, you know, I don't know, the last 15 years. I've heard, I don't know how many sermons out of Acts 16. If you can't preach Acts 16, you, you need to find a different career. It's an amazing story, right? I mean, it's another jailbreak in Acts, and God shakes the prison, and Paul and Silas get free, and everybody gets saved, and it's just amazing. But I saw something in this story that I'd never really seen before, never really paid attention to, and it's my one big point. Now, I, I do, it, it's going to take me a little bit to get there, but I've got one big point, one little main point that is, I think, just super amazing. It's something, it, you know, when you study the Bible, a little side note, sometimes it's really good to just, um, like, like when you read a recipe, right, you, you, you kind of, you take in every little detail, every little instruction, you read it over and over and over and over and over again, and you really want to get a sense of what it's saying. And sometimes if you're in an epistle, for example, one of Paul's letters or Peter's, it's good to just dissect it, read it over and over again, try to get a sense of his logic and why he's putting words together the way he is. But sometimes, and, and I love this, there are parts of the Bible where you just get to live in the story. You get to just almost just sort of sit back like it's on a big movie screen and take it all in. And that's what we get to do today in Acts chapter 16. Let me read a portion of it, and I'll pray and we'll get started, okay? Acts chapter 16 Let's start in verse 25. Verse 25. I still hear some pages, so I'll wait. All right, verse 25. And about midnight, Paul and Silas were praying and singing hymns to God, and the prisoners were listening to them. And suddenly there was a great earthquake so that the foundations of the prison were shaken, and immediately all the doors were opened and everyone's bonds were unfastened. When the jailer woke and saw the prison doors were open, he drew his sword and was about to kill himself. What kind of person do you work for that when something like this happens, the better option is to run yourself through with a sword than go and tell them the prisoners have escaped? Wow. It's just gut-wrenching. But Paul cried with a loud voice, Do not harm yourself, for we are all here. Nobody left. We'll come back to that. And the jailer called for the lights and rushed in, and trembling with fear, he fell down before Paul and Silas. Then he brought them out and said, Sirs, what must I do to be saved? And they said, Believe in the Lord Jesus, and you will be saved, you and your whole household. And they spoke the word of the Lord to him and to all who were in his house. And he took them the same hour of the night, I love this, and washed their wounds. And he was baptized at once, he and all his family. Then they brought them up into the house and set food before him. And he rejoiced along with his entire household that he had believed in God. How many of you um, saw the solar eclipse, saw the total solar eclipse just a month ago or so? Yeah. Isn't that amazing? I mean, the moon is just about a, quarter of a million miles from here, 200 and 
38,000, I think it is. It's almost a quarter of a million. The sun is 98 million miles, I think I'm right about that, from us. And somehow, every so often, the three line up in such a way that the moon completely blocks the sun. And when, when that happened, it was so awesome because the, you know, the, the temperature dropped like 15 degrees. The crickets woke up, the cicadas. There are these weird shadows on the ground that I still don't understand how that happens, right? Birds start darting back to their nests. And I just sat there in that moment. My kids are running around the yard going crazy. If you, if, you, if you want to see the video, Mary's got it on her phone. It's hilarious. They just go absolutely insane. They're just hollering, screaming, running laps around the grass. Totality, totality. It was, it was really funny. Um, but I sat there that, that afternoon, and I thought, God, you're, you're just amazing. And, and when you stop and think about all that we know about the universe now and how big and massive it is, like, like just thinking about the, the, the earth to the moon and the earth to the sun and, and, and eclipse like that happening is fascinating. But when you realize that we're a part, a very tiny part of a very large galaxy with billions of stars and there are billions of galaxies and the, and the universe is ever expanding. It's so massive. It's so huge. We can't even see the end of it. And galaxies are bumping into each other. And it's so massive. And I stop and think about that and I have to go, God, why so big? Like, you know, regardless of what you may think or what theories you've bought into about is there life on some other planet somewhere, let's at least agree on this much right now. We had not found one yet, right? We haven't found one that has, where there's life on other planets. So if it's just us in the universe, if that's all God created, you almost just kind of feel like, God, wouldn't 80,000 miles across or something like that be enough? Why so big for us? We're so small. We're so tiny. And yet the universe is so huge and God just. Pfft. It's like, like me at this wedding I did yesterday out in the hot sun. I was flinging sweat off my forehead because when you're bald, there's no hair to catch sweat. It just rolls into your eyes. And so I'm just flinging sweat off like this. And with, with less effort than that, God flung the universe into existence and he upholds it. By the word of his power, he holds it in the palm of his hand and I can get down on my knees or I can be driving in my car and I can call on his name about my little girl who's got a spelling test on Friday and he listens. What? That's mind-boggling. I don't care who you are. That's mind-boggling. That's who he is. He's that big and we're that small. And sometimes I think the reason why we, in the midst of trying circumstances, when life's hard, when life's frustrating, it's not working out exactly like we thought it could or should or like we deserve, the reason why we're tempted to lose heart and give up is that we lose sight of the fact that our God is that big. And even though he's that big, it's like the scripture that asks the eternal question, who is man that you are mindful of him? But yet you are. You lose sight of that. You lose sight of the fact that our God is always working in a trillion ways that we cannot see. I've got one little problem. And he's not just doing one thing I can't see. He's doing a trillion things I can't see. 
and all of it is going to work together for good. All of it's going to connect with everything else he's doing at some point. That little blip on the cosmic radar in your finances or in your health or in your marriage or with your children or with your job, with your employer or with whatever else you're going through, that little blip on the cosmic radar, God's working in a trillion ways to connect it with all the other trillion ways that he's working all things together for good so that we're going to spend eternity praising the glory of his grace. Ah, makes my head hurt. It's so awesome. That's who he is. And I lose sight of that. I, I forget about that. And I get frustrated. And sometimes I want to quit. Sometimes I want to lose heart. Sometimes I want to go, you know what, God? I'm tired of trying to believe when I can't see. Anybody else ever been there besides me? I can't see the end from the beginning. God does. God sees the end from the beginning. He knows where he's going to finish before he ever starts. I just have to start, and sometimes I feel like I'm walking blind. Sometimes I feel like I don't know where this is going to end up. All I know is I've got one little step in front of me. I've got one little nugget of promise in Scripture or something the Lord has done that's let, sort of let me believe that He's with me, that He's actually doing something. I've got these one little things that that's all I got. All I got to know, all I know is I got to start here, but I have no clue how it's going to end up. How's God going to connect all the dots? I think that's where Paul and Silas are. In Acts 16, you, you can't really understand or fathom Acts 16 until you realize that this is Paul's second missionary journey. He took three. This is number two. Number one was really like it was a great, great journey. Yeah, he had some persecution. He had some resistance. He got stoned, got bloodied you know, a little bit, but... For in the large part, he and Barnabas, who, by the way, Barnabas was this, this guy's nickname. It means son of encouragement. So he's traveling around with a guy who's just really good at encouraging people. That's pretty awesome in and of itself, right? And they're traveling around. They're going into city after city after city. And here was their strategy. They would go into the local Jewish synagogue. They would preach the good news of Jesus Christ. People would get saved. Some would believe. Some wouldn't. There was some resistance. But in large part, there was huge success. You can go back and look, Acts 13, 14, 15, and look at the success that Paul and Barnabas had in uh, Antioch and in Cyprus, right? Think about Lystra, for crying out loud. They started bowing down and worshiping Paul and Barnabas when he healed a crippled man. Now, that's not really good. That's not the right thing, but I would say that's some kind of some good going on in there if people are going, oh, Paul and Silas, right? It's good. But the second journey doesn't get started that way. It starts off, Paul and Barnabas end up in a huge fight, an argument. They split ways. They split ways. Paul grabs Silas. They start the journey. And here's what the beginning of Acts 16 tells us, that Paul tries to go to Asia, and he's prevented by the Lord from doing anything. What does that mean, Bradley? I have no clue. All I can tell you is that the Lord somehow said, nope, not here. He goes over to a place called Bithynia, and the same thing. The Holy Spirit wouldn't let him do anything. I mean, this, this whole journey started with Paul going over to Barnabas and saying, Hey, Barn, 
Let's go check on the churches that we started. And he starts off and it's just like, no, no, no. And finally Paul gets a vision of a man from a place called Macedonia. Come over here, Paul. Come over here. So Paul, next morning, he looks at Silas and says, hey, I had a vision. We're going to Macedonia. So they go to Macedonia. And they end up in the leading city of Macedonia, and it's called Philippi. Does that sound familiar? There's a book in the Bible called... Ah. So we're at the beginning of a process, right? You with me on that? There's a process. Something's going to happen between Paul arriving in Philippi and a church being planted. Whatever happens in between there, that's where we know this is ending up. But Paul doesn't see that yet, right? How many of you know it's hard at times to be patient in the process? When you, when you don't know the end from the beginning, sometimes it's hard to trust and rest and wait and endure and persevere when you can't see the end from the beginning. But we get the advantage of looking at Paul's story and knowing the end from the beginning. Let's see what kind of church ends up being planted in this city called Philippi. Look with me at Philippians chapter 1, verse 3. So Paul's going to Paul's writing to the church he's going to start. It's not happened yet, but this is where it's going. Paul says, Philippians 3, uh, chapter 1, verse 3, I thank my God in all my remembrance of you, always in every prayer of mine for you, all making my prayer with joy, because of your partnership in the gospel from the first day until now. And I'm sure of this. That he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. It is right for me to feel this way about you all because I hold you in my heart. Paul loves the Philippian church. Like some of you parents, you know, you don't want to admit you got a favorite kid. I'm just teasing. If you ask Paul, what's your favorite church of all the churches you planted? He'd probably say, I love them all, but I'm going to tell you, I think he liked Philippians the best. Just look at what he says. I hold you in my heart, for you are all partakers with me of grace, both in my imprisonment and in the defense and confirmation of the gospel. For God is my witness how I yearn for you. I yearn for you all with the affection of Jesus Christ. Christ Jesus. How awesome is that? That's where we're going. That's exciting. Arriving in Philippi, we've been frustrated at Asia Bithynia, but we're now in Philippi, and that's where this is ending up. This is exciting. Well, how does it get started? Well, first of all, he shows up in Philippi, and there's no synagogue. Now, I don't know how Paul felt about that. I don't know how much he knew about Philippi before he arrived there. But I imagine that that was a little bit of a, okay, well, what do we do now? Because the pattern in every other city was go to the synagogue, preach to the Jews, and Jews and Greeks get saved. That's the pattern. That's the goal. That's the plan. Everybody, people are going to listen. We're going to give an altar call. They're going to get saved. It's going to be epic. But there's no synagogue, which means there was very few people of Jewish persuasion in 
Philippi. In fact, in order for there to be a Jewish synagogue established in a city, there had to be ten Jewish men. There could be nine men and 400 women, and there still wouldn't have a Jewish synagogue. There had to be a quorum of ten men. So there's no Jewish synagogue. Paul sees a vision of a man come over here to Macedonia. He gets there, and there's not enough men to have a synagogue. So what do we do? Paul finds a little women's prayer meeting by the sea. Silas, let's go over there. You ever been in a place where it feels like a thousand doors have closed and only one tiny one opens? Like you've heard a thousand no's and the only person that says yes seems like they have no ability to help you with what you need? It's like one little door opens. There's a prayer meeting by the sea. No synagogue, no large crowd to preach to, just a little prayer meeting by the sea. It's, this is not my point. Okay? Just, just a little point on the way to the point. Sometimes all God will give you is one little tiny step. Sometimes just one little door will open. And guess what? If you're going to be patient in the process and not lose heart, sometimes you just got to walk through the little open door. I thought, I thought I was going to end up, I thought it was going to go this way. I thought, I thought I was going to have this kind of success and it was going to work out this way. And, and the strategy that I used last time in a similar season was going to work in this season. No, not necessarily. Because God doesn't require a Jewish synagogue to turn a city upside down. And what it took last time may not be what it's going to take this time because God does things in different ways to bring himself glory and to awaken people to his grace and love and mercy. And sometimes you just got to adapt and go with the flow. There's one little door open, walk through it. God, you've closed every other door and I don't know where this is going, but okay. Sometimes when you go through the little door, God will give you a little nugget. You ever got a little nugget from the Lord? There's question marks everywhere. Frustration everywhere, but he gives you a little nugget. This is not my main point. This is just a little point on the way. Stay with me. He'll give you a little nugget. Paul and Silas walk through the little door, and they meet a woman named Lydia. She's a business lady, probably wealthy. She maybe he's leading the prayer meeting. Paul and Silas go over and they share the story of Jesus with her. And she receives the good news. She's converted. She moves from death to life. And her and her whole household are saved. And once she gets saved, she begs Paul and Silas, come stay with us. We're going to take care of you. We're going to feed you. How encouraging that must have been for Paul and Silas. After conflict with Paul and Barnabas, Frustration in Asia, frustration in Bithynia. They get to Macedonia. There's no synagogue. This is not playing out like the first journey. What are we doing? We find a little prayer meeting. But Lydia gets saved, and she becomes a source of provision and rest for Paul and Silas in a place where they don't, can't see the end from the beginning. Sometimes when God gives you those little nuggets, there's a little door 
you walk through it, and there's a little nugget that just lets you know, hey, I'm here. I'm with you. You're on the right path. There might be a lot more pain ahead, but I'm here. I'm with you. You're on the right path. You stay the course. Here's a little nugget just to let you know. When God gives you those, I'm not promising he's going to do it every time, but when he gives you those, you walk in obedience, you cling to them, you hold on to them, you let them anchor you when the storm is raging all around. Paul got a little nugget. So Paul stays with Lydia, and apparently they're going back to this prayer meeting every day. There's no synagogue, so we're just going to go to the prayer meeting. And they're, they're going to the prayer meeting and they're praying and telling others about Jesus. And there's a little demon-possessed slave girl. You see how random these dots are? We've got a businesswoman named Lydia, and now we've got a demon-possessed slave girl. Her owners have leveraged the power of the spirit that possesses her so that she gives out. She's a fortune teller. And they're making tons of money off this little slave girl. Well, she sees Paul and Silas, and she starts following them around. And she takes it upon herself to be their announcer. So as Paul and Silas are wandering around through Philippi, she's going, these men are servants of the Most High God and are proclaiming to you the way of salvation. And Luke tells us she just kept doing that over and over and over and over again, and it got on Paul's nerves. So what the Bible said, read Acts 16. Got on his nerves. So he turns and he looks at her and he says, In the name of Jesus, come out of her. Words that hardly left his lips. That demon turns her loose, leaves, and with it, her owner's prophet. They're mad. They are mad. So they seize Paul and Silas. They drag them before the local magistrates. They tell them, these people have come here, they're, they're Jews, they're vagabond Jews, and they're turning this city upside down. They're proclaiming customs and traditions that are not lawful for us Romans, because they're in a Roman province, a Roman city. It's not lawful. They need to be punished. Magistrates, they're upset too, so they order Paul and Silas to be stripped and beaten with rods. Wow. Can't fathom that. But that's what happened. They were beaten severely and they were thrown into the inner prison. Inner prison, which probably means it was so dark in there they couldn't see their hands in front of their face and their legs are fastened in stocks. Now, the stocks that they had were, didn't just necessarily have two holes in them, one for each leg. Many times they had several holes in them, which allowed the jailer to put their legs in positions that would, that would you know, just cause the most severe discomfort and pain. So Paul and Silas could have been in that prison, having been stripped and beaten with rods, with their legs spread so far apart, they're in excruciating pain. This is where they find themselves. And it's an amazing story. They're there in the prison, beaten. And there's some details that I love. First is they're singing. This is not my main point. Okay, this is just a point on the way to the point. But they're singing, worshiping, praising God. You know, if, if my guitar is slightly out of tune, it could throw my worship off. 
And, you know, you don't, maybe some of you don't know this, but, you know, when we do worship up here and we're leading worship and in our ears, there's this that's keeping us on tempo. And sometimes we get off and it's very distracting, isn't it? You're, we're, we're on one tempo with y'all and then in our ears, it's all over the place and it's incredibly distracting. I get so distracted with things like that sometimes. It can actually hinder my worship. It can hinder my focus on God and his beauty and his worth. You might have been in here and had a bad hair day or your kids were crazy that morning or you don't like the shoes you got on and you get so distracted with that kind of stuff that you're unable to worship God. Paul and Silas have been beaten with rods and their feet are fastened in stocks and who knows what kind of contorted way and they're singing and praising God. How amazing is that? I also love the fact that the jailer and his whole household get saved. This is not my main point. But he gets saved, and the very person who might have overseen Paul and Silas being beaten washes their wounds. He washes their wounds and gives them food. How amazing is that? But above all of that, there, there's, a, there's a couple of details that I just had missed in this story or just never really given much thought to that stood out to me in such a powerful way when it comes to being patient in the process. When God caused an earthquake that shook the jail in such a way that the doors flung open and the shackles fell off, Paul and Silas didn't leave. And not only that, they had apparently won enough influence with the other prisoners in the prison that they convinced them not to leave either. Now, this is not the first jailbreak we've come across in the book of Acts, right? I mean, Peter is in prison, and an angel comes in and wakes Peter up and miraculously sets him free from his chains and his bonds and says, Peter, come on. They walk him right out into the street, and he goes back to his, the little gathering of believers that are, are praying for him. So what, what we know is that Paul and Silas didn't remain in prison because it's the Christian thing to do when God opens the doors and, uh, and looses the chains to just stay put. You, you with me on that? It's not, that's not why they stayed. They could have run out. Obviously, the jailer, when he saw the situation, his expectation was everybody's gone now because all the doors are open and all the chains are loosed. Paul says, we still here. Ain't nobody left. Stay put. Why? Why in the world would you have run out of there? absolutely I would have run out of there. But there's more. Look at your neighbor and say there's more. There's more. Look at verse 35. Not only did Paul and Silas not leave when the doors flung open. Look at this, verse 35. But when it was day, so the next day, the magistrates have ordered their beating and imprisonment for the night. And so by the next day they figured, okay, these Crazy guys have learned their lesson. Only thing left to do is turn them loose now. So the magistrate sent police saying, let these men go. And the jailer reported these words to Paul saying, the magistrates have sent 
to let you go. Therefore, come out now and go in peace. Watch this. But Paul said to them, They have beaten us publicly, uncondemned men who are Roman citizens. Whoa. That changes everything. Under Roman law, Paul and Silas, who apparently are both have a Roman citizenship, under Roman law, they are entitled to due process. According to the law, they cannot be imprisoned or punished without a full inquiry into the situation. A gross injustice has occurred. Now, let's keep reading. A gross injustice. But Paul said to them, They have beaten us publicly, uncondemned men who are Roman citizens, and now and have thrown us into prison. And do they not and and do they now throw us out secretly? No. Let them come themselves and take us out. The, the police reported these words to the magistrate, and they were afraid, afraid, when they heard that they were Roman citizens. They were afraid. The magistrates. These magistrates have gone from a, a feeling so angry, disturbed at what Paul and Silas have done in their city, and they feel so powerful, these lowly, good-for-nothing Jewish guys that are coming in here and stirring up this ruckus. Let's just beat the mess out of them and throw them in prison. They've gone from that to, oh, no. You know what that means? Before the first piece of clothing was stripped off of either one of them and before the first rod was pulled out to beat and bruise them, Paul and Silas could have stood up, pulled out their Roman citizenship card and said, uh-uh, go get us an attorney. Literally. But he didn't. He didn't. Now, I don't want to read too much into the text. But I just stopped and thought about that for a minute. Paul, almost like if I could have a conversation with him. Paul, why did you go through a beating like that, torture like that, imprisonment like that, feed in stocks like that, when you didn't have to? You could have stopped it. Are you just on some kind of Pain trip? What, what, what are you doing? Why? I don't know for sure. But I wonder if there wasn't a moment where Paul looked at Silas and said, no, don't pull that out yet. God's not done. Maybe, maybe he didn't have a sense yet that a great church is going to come from this church that I'm going to love, a church that I'm going to, that I, I know that they're going to pray for me, they're going to take offerings for me, that's recorded in Philippians 2, they're going to support me, they're going to encourage me, and I'm going to encourage them, and God's going to begin a great work in them that he's going to be faithful to complete. I don't know if he thought about that all the way through in the moment when rods were being pulled out and magistrates were gathered around them, ready to strip them and beat them. But there had to be something in Paul, in Silas that said, we don't know where this is going and it's going to be painful, but it's going to be purposeful because our God works in a trillion ways that we cannot see in the moment. He does things exceedingly, abundantly, above all we could ask 
or think. See, I'm like you and you're like me. When I'm in the pain, I'm fighting it off as fast as I can. Christians are not masochists. We We don't just look to torture ourselves. But there are these moments, I think, where you're in the middle of a frustrating, I can't connect the dots, I don't see how, I don't know where this is going, and this is incredibly painful, and I can't fix it, I can't change it. God, what are you doing that you hold on when you've walked maybe through a little door and God's given you a little nugget to hold on to, and then you know the promises of God that he's never going to leave you, he's never going to forsake you, he's always working things together for good for those who love him and are called according to his purpose, that you're in that moment, you're clinging to those promises, and you're trusting And you're resting that even when it's painful, I know, God, you're working in a trillion ways that I can't see, but it's going to be good. Can you imagine? Just imagine with me. Paul and Silas go through all of that. They, They come out on the other side of it, and an amazing church is planted. Jailer saved. This businesswoman named Lydia saved, a slave girl is delivered. Come out on the other side of that, and I don't know how long after Paul leaves, and he's in another prison somewhere, and he writes these words to the Philippian church in Philippians chapter 4, verse 11. Imagine those people. Imagine the jailer, perhaps, who came in and found Paul and Silas hadn't left and then figured out that they could have stopped this whole thing before it got started. Imagine that jailer reading these words. Verse 11. Not that I'm speaking of being in need, for I've learned in whatever situation I'm in to be content. Whatever situation I'm in to be content. I know how to be brought low. And I know how to abound in any and every circumstance. I've learned the secret of facing plenty and hunger, abundance and need. I can do all things through Christ who gives me strength. I think Paul must have had a sense as the second missionary journey began. God, this sure isn't playing out like it did the first time. God, this, this, this is totally not what we expected This is not what we envisioned when we thought about taking another journey and going and preaching the gospel and uplifting your name and participating with you in your kingdom work. This is not what we saw. This is not what we anticipated. This is not what, this was not the forecast that we gave all the believers back in Jerusalem when we told them, hey, we're leaving, we're going, we're going to go check on some churches. This is not what we expected, but God, you're up to something bigger than we can see. Sometimes I just need to be reminded how big he is and how small I am. And yet, despite that kind of gap between he and I, he's so mindful of every little detail of my life. And he's going to connect my dots to your dots and your dots to his dots. And all of a sudden, one day, when, when the trumpet sounds and, and, and this temporary world is no more, we're going to be praising him and his glorious grace because we're going to be so in awe 
when what Paul talked about in Colossians, when he reconciles all things, all things, all things. I'm going to say it till you get it. All things to himself. That's what he's doing. I'm not telling you it's going to be easy. That's, not, that's, that's, that's certainly not the point of the message. The point of the message is this. You can be patient in the process. You can have joy in the pain. You can rest even when you're in the most uncomfortable position imaginable. You can rest and sing and praise Him because He's working. Now, there is a bondage we can succumb to, a, a, a chain, a weight. And I think it's the chain, it's the weight, it's the bondage of fair. It's, it's, it, I, I look at my life and I look at your life and your life and, my, and I compare it to my pain, your pain to my pain and, 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 and vice versa. And we, we sit there and we go, well, you've been through this, and, but, but I had to go through that. You, you, you aren't crippled by what I'm crippled by. You aren't having to carry the weight that I'm carrying. They didn't do to you what they did to me. We get in bondage to that stuff. And I can, and, and listen, it would do us well to admit that in the same way that our perspective on the process itself, we can't see the end from the beginning. It, it, we're that, our, our vision is that finite. It's that limited. My ability and your ability to understand and process what's fair is incredibly limited, finite. It's broken. I could talk about fair for a long time. I'm not going to today except to say this. Here's, there's, there's, there's really, I think, one great way to be set free from the bondage to your finite perspective on fair. And that's just to lift your hands and sing praise to God. I mean, Paul and Silas, they could have easily said, this isn't fair, this isn't right, this isn't just. We're Roman citizens. But instead of doing that, what did they do instead of playing the card? They took the injustice squarely on the chin and sang praise to God. And they were patient in the process. And God did something exceeding, abundant, above all that perhaps they could have asked or thought when they first saw the vision of a man from Macedonia saying, Paul, Silas, come here. Don't shortchange the process. And don't let the bondage to what you think is fair keep you from singing, being patient, having joy in the process because I can't promise you that it won't be painful. I can't promise you that what you hope the end will be is what the end will be. But here's what I can promise you. I can promise you, not because, because it's a promise that doesn't originate from me. It originates from the Word, is that it will be good. 
it will be glorious. And when it's all said and done, whether in this life or in eternity, we'll look back on it and say, it was light, it was momentary, and it doesn't compare to the glory that God brought out of it. You can be patient in the process. So we're going to pray, and we're going to sing. And maybe what the Lord wants to do in you right now is lead you to worship, lead you to sing, and be set free. Paul was in a prison free. And maybe before you leave here today, something could happen on the inside that would totally change the way you see everything going on on the outside. Stand with me and let's pray. Praise team, you come on. Lord, I, I feel incredibly humble right now just, just at the thought of these words that you've led me to share today. They're huge. They're massive. They're, they're, they're so big. I feel incredibly unworthy to even preach them. I feel, Lord, such a strong, overwhelming sense of just how big you are, how small I am. But Lord, it amazes me that you would call me and my friends here this morning to great faith in you. Faith that is so big and so powerful that we could be in the midst of the most uncomfortable, difficult, painful struggles, seasons, and be a people of praise. Because you're doing something you're doing a million things. You're doing a trillion things beyond what we can see. And, and somehow, some way, you're going to connect all the dots together. Lord, help us not to despise the process. Help us not to resist the process, the journey. But Lord, let us embrace it with joy, with patience, with peace. Let us embrace it. Holy Spirit, you're going to have to help us with that. We need you. Do that, I pray, so that the life of God in these decaying bodies could be made manifest and known to the world. In Jesus' name, amen.